Hey friends, my name is Ryan Hughley. I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I want to welcome you to our podcast. We're working to build a community position to experience God in daily life. Our weekly teaching is one piece of that work. So as you listen to this week's message, my prayer is that you would hear God inviting you to respond to his love and his desire for you. For more information, you can visit ridgeline.church. So when I got Denise's text yesterday, it was a slight panic of, okay, I've got, usually I have a week, now I've got 24 hours, what do I do? So I just started to think about, and looking through my journal from the last couple weeks on what are some things that God has been sharing with me, and I was almost immediately drawn to some things that God's been saying to me about the topic of disappointment, specifically disappointment with him. And so this morning, I'm going to call this message, When Jesus Disappoints. Because sometimes, and I I want us to have the freedom to be able to acknowledge this, sometimes God's like uber disappointing. And that might sound like heresy to you, and I don't think it is, I think it's just reality. And so this morning, we're going to talk about disappointment. Because we live in a broken world, and because we only ever at best possess a very limited understanding of, of, of what is happening in us and around us. Because of all that, disappointment is one of the most common human emotions and experiences. And what makes it tricky is there's so many different ways to be disappointed. Like we all know what it is probably to be disappointed with circumstances. Something doesn't go the way that we thought it was going to go, or something doesn't go the way that we hoped that it should go. I remember in February of 2020, I took a retreat day. I'd been uh, for a couple of months reading about what's called uh, developing a rule of life. Now, a rule of life is kind of like, if you think, think about like a trellis. If you don't have a trellis set up, then a plant that you might be trying to grow that grow that needs a trellis to grow is just gonna die on the ground. And so you have a trellis for a vine to be able to grow up Uh, on. And so when Jesus uh, invites us to abide in him, that doesn't just happen naturally. We have to position life to be able to actually abide in Jesus. And so historically, Christians have used what's called a rule of life, which is looking at every facet of your life and trying to position in a way that makes it possible to abide in Jesus. So I'd been reading a couple books about that and really trying to to pray and discern how God wanted me to do that. The day came, I went up to Park City, the the Catholic church that's up there. They've been very kind to me and let me come and have some space there to be able to get away and pray and think through this. So I go up there, spent the whole day, had this rule of life dialed in like I was going to be so Jesus-y by the end of 2020. I was fired up. And then March 2020 came, COVID hit and ruined everything. And I was so disappointed because I had worked so hard to get this thing set up and I had not known to account for a global pandemic that was going to completely destroy it. So sometimes something like that happens and we're just really disappointed with circumstances. But we also know what it is to be disappointed with people. Where someone doesn't do something that they said they would do. Someone does not do something that they should do as an important person in our life. We also know what it is to be disappointed with a product, right? You ever had a product that you became aware of and you're like, this is gonna change my life. And then it comes and it does not so much. 
So I got this weird thing in my head a few months ago where I was like, you know what? I want, I, I've been seeing like some of the cool kids are wearing coveralls, you know, like mechanics wear. Here's what I'm a big fan of. I'm a fan of not being squeezed by my clothes. And so a coverall is just like a one-piece jumper outfit, and I'm like, I'm going to get some coveralls, and I'm going to look sick in them. Here's what happened. They came. I did not look sick in them. I just looked like I was going out to trick-or-treat as a mechanic, but everyone knows my hands are way too soft to actually be a mechanic. So I just looked like this big, lumpy dope in a really embarrassing outfit. And I got to tell you, I looked in the mirror, and I was like, this is disappointing. I'm disappointed with everything that's happening here. So we know what it is to be disappointed with circumstances and with people or with a product, but you know the most painful experience, I would argue, of disappointment is when you find yourself in a season where you are deeply, profoundly disappointed with Jesus. And that very much does happen. And for many of us, based on the way maybe that we were raised or whatever conception we have of of who God is and what he's like and what he welcomes from us, it might be really hard to admit that. But the truth is, Jesus does disappoint us. Now, I would not say that our disappointment is always valid. In fact, I would argue that if we knew what God knows, then we would always do what God does. But we don't always know what God knows. And so the truth is, we experience things in relationship with him that can be severely disappointing. And the problem is, a failure to steward disappointment in a healthy way always runs the risk of destroying our faith. One of the things that has been so commonplace within the church over the last couple of years is we're just hearing more and more about this word deconstruction, where people who once had faith in Jesus deconstruct all the way out of their faith sometimes. And I have found, in the people that I've talked to, I've ignored all of the stupid rhetoric about it online, because in my experience, all of these criticisms that get, that get thrown at people who experience deconstruction, they all miss the mark. And what I have found is when you track back someone who experiences deconstruction in their life, oftentimes what you find is a point in time in which they were severely disappointed with God and didn't know how to steward that disappointment well. And so then they go through this process where they end up completely out of relationship with God whatsoever. And so it is just so critical that when we experience disappointment toward God, with God, and in God, that we know how to actually steward that. And so here's my big idea this morning. If you're taking notes, I'd invite you to write this down. Disappointment is a disorienting invitation to deeper relationship with Jesus. Disappointment, it's not purposeless. It's not wrong. It's not bad. It is disorienting for sure, but it is still an invitation to deeper relationship with Jesus. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at an incredible story in John 11 that many of you will probably be familiar with, but I want you to notice how this is, this is probably a story of the deepest disappointment with Jesus imaginable, where Jesus does not come through in a way that some of his closest friends thought that he should, and we get to experience both their disappointment and get to see how they stewarded it and how they responded to it and to learn from their example. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to John 11. doesn't really require a ton of uh, contextual setup for us. Jesus is like 
kind of toward the end of his earthly ministry, tensions are rising with the religious leaders, and he is, has just run away, as we'll see, because they had just tried to kill him again. And then in the midst of this, his friends experience a really severe tragedy. So look with me at John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, pause there for a second. So at the center of this story are these three people. Jesus has this unique relationship with a man named Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. His love, Jesus' love for Lazarus is actually mentioned three times in John 11. In John 12, we read about Mary, as we saw here, anointing Jesus' feet with this expensive perfume and drying his feet with her hair. He's been in their home. And so the point of these relational details in the beginning is to help us understand Jesus was like super close to these people. These were not strangers. These were not mere acquaintances. These weren't even just mere disciples. He had a uniquely intimate relationship with Lazarus, with Mary, and with Martha. And it's important that we understand that because if we don't understand that, we might mis misunderstand his response to this message as being very, very calloused. Because the clear implication in this message that they send to Jesus about their brother is that like Lazarus is not well. He is on the verge of death. And so put yourself into the shoes of, to Mary, of Mary and Martha. This is a clear plea for help. They knew Jesus. They had seen his power over and over and over again to heal. And so in their minds, they think, man, if anybody can help Lazarus, certainly it's going to be Jesus. And that desperation that fuels this message is, is what makes his response seem so cold. Because Jesus gets this plea for help, and he kind of just shirks it off saying, well, this sickness will not end in death. Which is an interesting comment, because... Spoiler alert, if you don't know the story, it for sure ends in death. Lazarus is going to die just a day after this event. And so Jesus' comment, it's important to filter that through what Jesus is talking about here. It's not like he was wrong, but he is talking about ultimately what is going to come out of this. He knows what the end is going to be of this story. And so he says, this sickness does not end in death. And he also tells us that there was something unique about God's glory that was going to be seen and displayed and was bound up in everything that's going to come next. Look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in that place where he was. Just really, really read with me that, that again, because that's a weird couple of sentences. Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Isn't that a weird response from Jesus? 
we learn again that he deeply loved this family. But then the text says, so as a result of that love, he did nothing for two days. In response to this message, like if you got a message from someone that you loved deeply, and, and you knew like they're on the verge of death, this is not good. Your response to that would be one of, of urgency. But instead with Jesus, in response to this urgent plea, we see nothing. And somehow it was love that drove Jesus to wait, even at the risk of disappointing Mary and Martha, and even at the risk of allowing Lazarus to die. Look at verse 7. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going there again? And Jesus said, aren't there 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. This is one of those moments where Jesus is interacting with his disciples and you wonder like, why do you have to be so Yoda-like? Can't you just speak clearly? So here, here's what it is that Jesus is trying to get across. His disciples are understandably concerned for his safety. The Jews literally, if you read what happened prior to this, tension, as I mentioned, has been mounting with the Pharisees and they had literally just tried to stone Jesus for blasphemy, but Jesus escaped and ran away to where they were right now. And now he's like, hey, let's go back there. And so they're understandably like, hey, how about we don't do that? But what they were missing was that Jesus' response displayed his devotion to the Father's plan. See, most people in this culture worked while there was daylight. So there would be roughly 12 hours of daylight in a day. If there was daylight, then there was work to do. And so Jesus was using that as a metaphor, saying, man, there's a limited amount of daylight for my ministry. The clock is ticking. The, the Father has things that he has put in front of me to accomplish. And so regardless of the danger, regardless of the risk, I have to go because this is the Father's plan for me. And he also set that before his, his disciples as an example, an example to them and an example to us, that we would embrace doing what the Father places before us, no matter what it cost. And so they're, they're a little worried, but Jesus is like, we gotta go. Look at verse 11. He said this, and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus, has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. And then Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. So Jesus here continues to unfold the purpose of why did he delay? Why did he wait? Why didn't he rush to get there to save Lazarus? He says again in verse 15, I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. Let's go to him. So one of his purposes in waiting was their belief. He wanted them to experience a move of the Father through him that was so significant and so powerful that it would draw them in to deeper belief. And the same principle holds true in our lives. Every 
Behind every obstacle we face is always Jesus inviting us to believe him more deeply. Look at verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, and listen to the disappointment of this statement, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I think this might be the most important verses in this entire story. And there's something so critical taking, pla taking place here. I want you to notice that Martha is choosing to experience two things. She is both deeply disappointed and determined to trust. Both of those things are happening there. In her statement, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. That's disappointment. But then she continues and she says, but even now, I know that the Father will do anything that you ask him to do. Now, when we experience these moments of, and seasons of disappointment with God, it's so critical, like Martha, we choose both of these things. That we choose to allow ourselves to feel and to express the disappointment and that we would choose this determined trust. And here's why both of those things are necessary. If you have disappointment that you allow yourself to experience and to feel, you even allow yourself to tell God about it, but you don't also have determined trust, that recipe ends in despair. That recipe ends in, I'm done with my relationship with God because he's been such a severe disappointment to me. But if you choose trust and you don't allow yourself to acknowledge the disappointment, then you end up with what I kind of jokingly refer to as bobblehead Christianity, which is this weird choice of faith. Like you've seen a bobblehead, right? They just kind of bob up and down. That's how I see a lot of Christians that are unwilling to experience grief and anger and difficulty, all emotions that God has given us. You're just like, everything's fine. Everything is good. I know my brother's dead, but it's okay. It's not okay. They were severely disappointed that Jesus did not save him and heal him. And so if you have trust, but you don't allow yourself to wade into the disappointment, then what you end up with is a fragmented soul. Because Jesus welcomes all of us. He welcomes our thought life, he welcomes our feelings and our emotions. He welcomes our behavior. He welcomes the whole person to himself. All of our parts are welcome with him. And so Mark, Martha here is a picture of integrated faith. She brings her whole self to Jesus. She chooses both disappointment and, but I'm going to keep trusting you. And look what happens. Jesus responds and he says, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. 
Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God who comes into the world. Now, her response would have been very typical of most Jewish people because Jewish people in the first century, by and large, almost all of them believed in a final resurrection. And so she assumes when Jesus says, hey, Lazarus is going to rise again, she believes that that's what Jesus is referring to. That in the end of human history, that God will raise people from the dead. But Jesus wants her eyes off of that final resurrection and onto him as an experience of resurrection right there and right now. And so he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And that belief, when that word is used, it's used so many times throughout John. John's gospel, the the overarching theme is one of belief. And when we read that word belief in the gospel of John, it's not just a cognitive thing, it's a heartfelt trust. And so he's asking her, do you trust me? Do you trust that I am the resurrection and the life? And that's the same question that he poses to every single one of us each day. And so thankfully, Martha responds and says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. And notice what happens next. In verse 28, we read this. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And as soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So in Jewish custom, No matter how poor a family was, it was commonplace and an expectation that when a family lost a loved one, that even if they were very, very poor, they would hire at least two flute players and a professional whaler. It's a real thing. Two things I think about when I hear that. Number one is that the Jewish people knew how to grieve much better than what we do much of the time. In our own culture, we oftentimes don't know what to do with grief when we lose someone. The second thing that comes to mind is like, what is the makeup of a person who is a professional whaler? What a weird, what a weird job that you're, you get paid to go to someone's house when they die and just cry with them. I have no idea what the emotional makeup of that person is, but I would like to meet them. So there's a good possibility that Lazarus and Mary and Martha were a very influential family because verse 19 tells us that there were a great number of Jews who were there with them. And Jesus, I want you to notice, notice Mary says the same thing to Jesus. If you had been here, Lord, then Lazarus wouldn't have died. So again, we see her disappointment with Jesus' lack of response to their situation. And she's experiencing immense grief. And Jesus' response to that grief is so important. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And then notice verse 35. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? 
And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said to them. So here, so notice that in response to this immense grief that he is seeing and experiencing all around him, Jesus' response is to enter into that grief, and the text says that Jesus himself wept. Now, let me ask you this question. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But why do you think Jesus wept? And the truth is, it's a simple question, but you know, it's one that scholars and Christians have been wrestling with for about 2,000 years. Theories abound about what it was that, that, that caused this emotion to come up and to come from Jesus. And so, because those theories abound, it means no one really knows for sure. And so, here's my theory on why Jesus wept. I think, it's real simple, I think he was deeply moved by their grief. I think that's why Jesus wept. And I've heard critics of that opinion or conviction say, well, why would Jesus weep when he knew the ending? Jesus knew that he was going to call Latin again. Like, if you don't know this story, I'm telling it in a broken fashion, and you probably know this story. So Lazarus is going to come back from the dead, okay? That's what's going to happen. And so if Jesus knew he was going to do that, then why would he be sad? And I think the reason that even though he knew the ending, that he was still sad is because he experienced profound empathy all of the time. How often does, in the Gospels does Jesus come across a crowd and over and over and over again, what is pointed out about him is that he felt deep compassion for them. Jesus felt for the people in his life. And just because someone knows the ending doesn't mean the journey is not painful, right? Like last night, Pastor Tyler came over to our house for dinner, and then afterward we watched what is one of all of our favorite movies, The Greatest Showman. Everybody show hands, how many, how many of you have seen Greatest Showman? Okay, if you haven't, you gotta get on that, okay? It's really, really good. So <clears throat> we had the same, Tammy and I, same experience that we have had each of the five to 10 times that we've seen that movie. The, the, the first beat drops in, boom, boom, and we started to cry right away. Just, just two kick drums and I was a blubbering mess. And that continued until the end of the movie. And that has happened every single time we have ever watched this movie. And the reason that that movie invokes such emotion, at least for me, I can't speak for everyone, but for me is that it's just filled with both beauty and pain. In fact, I, I would argue that one of the things we see in that film is, is the beauty of pain and what God can do and in, in, in people's lives as they experience suffering. Now, if you've never seen the movie, I'm going to just tell you because I'm just ruining all stories for you today. It has a very happy ending, okay? Everything resolves, everything's good by the end, it has a very, very happy ending. But the journey to get there is just filled with hardship. We see the pain in that film of racism, of prejudice, of betrayal, of death, and of loss. And there's just so much of that through the whole thing. And even knowing that the ending is going to be happy, you still feel the weight of that pain the entire time. Again, just because you know something has a happy ending doesn't mean the journey to get there is not filled with hurt. 
And so what we should take from Jesus' response here in John 11 is that when, even though Jesus knows the ending, even though Jesus knows a day is coming when he will return and he will put all things right, he hurts when we hurt. Even though he knows the end, he's still willing to enter into the pain, the suffering, and the grief that we all experience. And we see him doing that here. Now look with me back at verse 38. We're almost to the end of this story. Jesus said, Jesus then, deeply moved, again came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, he said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone and then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. And after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. So I want you to notice that for the second time here, we're told that Lazarus had been dead for four days. And the reason that John puts that in this story is that John wants his readers to know that Lazarus was like super dead. <laughs> like no mistaking, he was very, very dead. See, Jewish superstition held that when a person died and was put in a tomb like this, that their spirit hovered above their body for two days, hoping for re-entry. And so Jesus, the reason that he delayed, the reason that he waited until it had been four days, is he did not want them to misunderstand this resurrection for a resuscitation. So Jesus waited so that they would see and have this experience and put yourself in this experience for just a second. This stone is rolled away. Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and he prays and he calls Lazarus out. And it's interesting for years, people have commented on the fact that the reason that Jesus called Lazarus by name is that had he not called Lazarus by name, Jesus' power to call forth life was so much so that all of the graves would give up their dead if he did not call Lazarus by name. And so he calls out to Lazarus. And then just imagine being there and seeing this like totally bound, come waddling out like a penguin, covered in everything that he had been entombed in. And this man that had been dead for four days is now alive. The result is exactly what you'd anticipate, and it's one of deep and profound belief that Jesus is the Messiah. Mary, Martha, and I guarantee you Lazarus believed that. <laughs> and so did, I hope, and so did a bunch of other people who were standing around. But again, the context for this miracle was this deep experience of disappointment. And so what do we learn from this story about how to steward our disappointment? What do we do when we feel disappointed with Jesus? Well, I think we see two things here. The first thing to do when you feel when Jesus disappoints, number one is tell him. Real simple. Even though it's simple, it's a step that oftentimes we just bypass. 
Tell him. What you should not do is harbor that disappointment in silence. Because when you just harbor the disappointment, that disappointment turns into resentment. And that resentment turns into bitterness. And bitterness turns into a broken relationship with Jesus. And so don't make that mistake. Tell him you're disappointed. Mary and Martha did it. And their relationship was deeper and more intimate with Jesus after the fact. Your disappointment will not damage relationship with Jesus, but running from him absolutely will. So when you experience disappointment in relationship with Jesus, the first relational step is to tell him. Secondly, as we saw with Martha, is to trust him. To trust him. Now, trust is not easy when we're experiencing disappointment. And it would be great if it was as simple as just like flipping a switch and deciding, all right, I'm not going to distrust, I'm going to trust. And so it's because it's complicated, an important question for us is, how do we move toward trust? Because it isn't just a, first I was feeling this, now I'm feeling this. How do we move toward trust? Well, I've got a couple of thoughts on that. The first is, wait for the good. Wait for the good. If a situation that you are in right now is not good, what that means is God is not done. Because he has promised that somehow, and I still do not understand this, that somehow he weaves all of the brokenness in our lives together in a way that somehow even can take these horrible, difficult, tragic, and traumatic circumstances, and somehow he can bring good from that. And so the way that we begin to move toward trust is we have to patiently wait for the good. If you're in a situation right now that is not marked by goodness, then God is not done. Which means we have to patiently wait for that good. Secondly, I would encourage you to wrestle with what, not why. Wrestle with what, not why. Here's what I mean by that. Oftentimes when we experience disappointment with Jesus then we immediately go to this place of why. Man, why would God do or not do what I want him to do? Why would God allow this? Why would God do this? Why would God allow me to experience this? And so we tend to fixate and get hung up on the why. But the truth is, wrestling with why is oftentimes a way of, dis- of avoiding the discomfort of what has actually happened. And so rather than spend all of your energy on why, why, what, because the truth is, I don't know if you've noticed this, oftentimes we don't know why. I've got a long list of stuff that's happened in my life. I have no idea why God has allowed it. But I know what has happened. I know the effect that it has had on me. I know the emotion that it, it causes to come up inside of me. And that is where God is, wanting to be with us wanting to soothe and to heal those wounds, wanting to bring comfort in the midst of what has actually happened. So rather than fixate on the why, wrestle with the disappointment that you're feeling. Wrestle with the pain. Wrestle with the grief. Turn toward it. Face it. Engage it. Because God is there with you in the midst of it. So wrestle with what rather than why. And then finally, And this is so key for us, and there will be no trust apart from this. We have to wrap our hearts in humility. Wrap your heart in humility. I would tell you that if you're going to walk with Jesus for a lifetime, 
it's gonna be really important for you to come to terms with your confusion regarding why he does the things that he does. Because there are a lot of things that God does or that God allows that are just confusing, that we don't understand. God's plan is often confusing. God's ways are often confusing. God's timing is terribly confusing so much of the time. And so one of the things that we have to embrace is there are going to be so many things about God that just don't make sense to us. And it's important that we have the humility to be able to acknowledge that. You know, in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, we we learn that God's ways are higher than our ways. That God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that his plans, that his workings, all of them are higher than ours. And it requires humility to embrace that. When we are hung up on why and having like insisting, I have to understand and I not just understand, I have to agree with everything that God does. We have to know that we are functioning out of this deep pool of pride in our heart that thinks like I I deserve to be God and to have everything function the way that I want. And pride, as Martin Luther said, is the mother of all sin. And the scriptures tell us that God opposes pride. And so if we were to have any hope of moving toward trust, then we have to consciously, intentionally work to wrap our hearts in the humility that we are not God, And we have to come to terms with our confusion at times and just know that there is going to be an aspect of mystery in walking with God. And the truth is, do you really want a relationship with a God who's so small that you understand everything about him? It's one of the things that makes God great is that he is beyond and with us. Disappointment is a disorienting invitation to deeper relationship with Jesus. That was the result of this experience in John 11. People experienced deeper relationship with him despite their disappointment. And it can be our experience if we will steward it well. And so if we are going to steward our disappointment well, then when that happens, we have to tell him and we have to trust him by waiting for the good by wrestling with what, not just why, and wrapping our hearts in humility that acknowledges God's higher ways. And even when we do that, it will still hurt. But there is a deeper, more formative, and more healing experience of Jesus on the other side. So will you make the, the, the decision on this end to steward that disappointment well? Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for each and every one of these people. And I thank you, Jesus, that you are big enough, that you are strong enough, that you are loving enough to invite our disappointment. I thank you that you don't want us to resist that and to hold that in silence apart from you. That your arms are open saying, come to me, tell me. 
because I want to help you trust me in the midst of a situation that I know is so disappointing. And Jesus, I thank you for the emotion that you feel toward us, that you are not discouraged with us, that you are not disappointed with us, that you are not frustrated or irritated with us when we hurt. Instead, you hurt when we do. And, and even, know, even though you know your plan, even though you know the ending, even though you know that there is an eternity of joy before us, that you still weep over us when we hurt. And so, Lord, I pray over everyone listening right now. And I pray that somehow, in some mysterious way, that those of us who sit here with wounds this morning would be able to feel your tears on them. That you see our hurt. You understand our hurt. That you are with us in the midst of our hurt. And I pray that you would help us in the midst of our disappointment to choose to trust that you are at work, that you do have a plan, that you will not leave us or forsake us, that you are bringing about healing in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that we would receive even the disappointment that we feel, as disorienting as it can be for us, that we would receive that as yet one more invitation to journey into deeper intimacy with you, to find that you are more good than we once thought, that you are more present than we once thought, that you are stronger than we once thought, that you have more power than we once thought, that you are more good than we once thought. Lord, help us to see that in the midst of and on the other side of every disappointment that we face. We love you. And we ask that you would move our hearts toward trust this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.